1: Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world today. This is your host, Steve Schallenberger, and we have really a very special guest with us today. Her experiences in both public service and the private sector have given her a unique insight into the practices that led and lead to positive relationships and productive communication between individuals, countries, and societies. She resides in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she is a speaker, entrepreneur, and writer. She is the author of Civility Rules, Creating a Purposeful Practice of Civility. So welcome, Shelby Scarborough. Thank you so much. I
2: love that enthusiasm, the emphasis on civility rules.
1: (laughs) That's perfect.
2: That's how I meant it to be.
1: (laughs) We're in the election season right now, and we've just gone through it for the last two-year cycle, and we have another two-year cycle coming up that's going to be big with the presidential election coming up. And so this subject of civility is huge, and it's uh, been a sad state of affairs here for the last few years. So I, for one, am looking forward to our visit today. Thank you. Me too. Well, now, before we get started, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Shelby. She began her career in the White House as a member of President Ronald Reagan's advance team, where she helped coordinate such landmark events as the reagan gorbachev moscow Summit. She then served as a protocol officer in the United States Department of State. And in 1990, Shelby founded Practical Protocol, LLC a company that plans bespoke events for foreign dignitaries such as Nelson Mandela, Pope John Paul II, and uh, Lech Walesha. I mean, a whole group of people. So Shelby is all over it. I've been looking forward (laughs) to this interview today. Same, Pierre. Thank you so much. All right. Well, to get going, Shelby, tell us about your background, and especially including any turning points in your life that have had a significant impact on you than even what you're doing today. Sure. I started out
2: making hamburgers. How does that for an auspicious beginning? (laughs) Really fancy. My parents went into the restaurant industry and began building Burger King's when I was about 15 years old. So my very first job was in the kitchen of a Burger King, actually everything from sweeping the floors to making the drinks, to being a, a, an order taker, to making the food. And eventually and through college, I would come home every summer and take the management courses and learn about managing the people and managing the restaurant, managing the business aspect of it, and always able to take part a shake machine and put it back together. So, you know, you kind of had to be a jack of all trades in that kind of business. That was probably my first, I would call, turning point. Introduction to entrepreneurship, introduction to managing people and interactions with people. It was invaluable to me. Uh, My parents probably, I don't know if it was by design, I think they were looking for opportunities to build a a legacy and to build something that everybody could be engaged with together. But I'd also really formed a lot of my basic fundamental values of hard work and personal responsibility and understanding what to look at what the customer needs and taking care of the customer.
1: Oh, fantastic. What a background.
2: (laughs) That was just the beginning. (laughs) It was fun.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, and I love the fact that you are part of the advanced team for some of those Reagan Gorbachev meetings or other historic things. So what was that like for you? And what were some things that impressed you that you remember from that time? Because it's so historic for what happened.
2: I was very lucky to be a part of the Reagan administration in the second term. That was, as you said, very historic presidency term. Lots of interesting things happened. And I got to travel around the world with the president and a team of people. I was part of a team, which is a big a great concept to understand, to learn how to work as a team. But the idea that perfection was the goal is hard. You know, the White House is a place where there's not a lot of room for error. One person's small mistake can get magnified in a big way very quickly. And so we all had to play our part to pay attention to the details and to try to be as professional and specific and accurate as possible. And I had... I would say I had my comeuppance in that because, you know, I was right out of college. And so this was my first job. And so not only was I just learning about my first job, aside from Burger King, I should say, my first professional job out out of college, working for somebody other than my parents, I had the right skill sets, I had the right attitude, but I had to learn some of the details of that job that made it put the basis of professionalism in my work that I hope that I carry through to today.
1: Well, I think that's a perfect preparation for the White House's uh, being uh, tutored <laughs> at Burger King. Right?
0: Yeah,
2: exactly. Well, listen. well, I always say, as, you know, the Burger King to the Queen of England, it's all the same to me. You know, it's all about customer service and paying attention to the needs of the customer and putting our ego aside and doing what's right and, and getting the job done efficiently and pleasantly, etc.
1: Okay, well, there's a lot of lessons just in that, aren't there? For me, there were. <laughs> well, for me, too. Well let's just jump into this Michelle why should society care about what George Washington had to say about civility? Why why well, is that a big deal for today? Yeah, you
2: know, he gets maligned a lot these days in in the public discourse and I think he has a lot of valuable things that he put out there in the world. We can talk a lot about his his whole history, but where I focused was when he was 16 he re, he wrote the rules of civility by transcribing a French etiquette book. It was a, a book meant to train nobles in French diplomatic and royal society to be of the right stature, have the right manners, et cetera. So it's a funny book. It has this, these, it's kind of written in an older English than we know now. One of my favorites, I always quote is, thou shalt not stand so close so as to bedew a man with one's spittle. So, if you think about that, basically it's, you know, keep your distance so that you don't put germs all over the other person. And that's a very interesting concept these days with in post COVID era it sounds funny then, but if we say, look, we got to give people some space and recognize that everybody has a little space bubble between them. In Western society, it's usually about three feet, but now, you know, with COVID, it's kind of gotten a little bigger. It got six feet and then now it's kind of coming back. But the idea that an old rule like that, that what actually goes back to the 1400s, it has relevance today is what I was looking at. So I took those rules and I re- re-looked at them from for the, what they really are trying to get across to people, and I bucketed them. They all kind of came together in a bucket of five or six things, like humility and dignity and respect and trust and courtesy, honor, those kinds of concepts. And that's what I then flipped the switch on the title. Instead of saying the rules of civility, I don't believe that we have to live by rules. I think we that civility should rule. So that's why I called my book civility rules. And it's a practice and it's the basis of what George Washington said but just revisited.
1: Well, he is such an inspiration, wasn't he?
2: He was. And he lived by a lot of his rules with the honor and the respect and the dignity he would walk with his troops, you know, at Valley Forge he's very famous for walking in the coldness and in the winter and making sure they were all taken care of. He wasn't an easy leader. He, he had a temper, but he also tried to temper that with kind works and good things for all of his people. And in the end, you know, he released his slaves and all of those kinds of things. So there's lots of things that, lots of depth and, and things to talk about, about George Washington.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought him up. What an inspiration. What role does personal responsibility play in becoming more civil in our society?
2: So to me, it's everything. It's the umbrella that encompasses all of the other things that I just mentioned, the dignity, the respect, the honor, the trust, the courtesy, the humility, personal responsibility is really at the heart of it. So, or as I said, an umbrella, you can see that covering everything because the bottom line is we can't change somebody else. We can change them. We just can't force change on somebody else. We can't make somebody change. We can help change happen by having our behavior be the way we think showing up in the world the way we feel that the world needs to be. And if we believe in civility, which I do, then that's having a practice of civility and and personally taking responsibility for my own actions. We tend to point fingers at other people. One of the first questions that I often get about civility is how do I make that so-and-so not, you know, what if that person is so uncivil, how do I talk to them? Well, you just behave in a way, it's very simple. I mean, there's some specifics, but that you behave in a way that, you would want them to behave. So it's just modeling behavior in its purest form and taking responsibility for our own actions rather than pointing the finger at someone else.
1: Okay, you've been talking about some really noble qualities and they're so important. Uh, Some people may have lost sight of them in today's world. Yes, it's easy to do. Yeah, I'll say. Dignity, uh, respect, honor, courtesy, trust, humility, and personal responsibility. How does a person incorporate this kind of civil behavior into uh, a daily practice?
2: So there's a lot of simple tools that we can revert to that are great from a communication standpoint that you might learn in a communications course. Like listening to learn and learning to listen. We often, you've heard that so often we're trying to wait till we respond with our opinions or our views rather than listening to what somebody has to say, thinking about that and responding to that appropriately and with dignity, letting the other person keep their dignity. Why do we need to tear someone down or make them feel stupid if they have a view different than ours? So we often, you know, shame people if how can you think that kind of statements? Why? But I don't find those to be necessary now, we're all human. And sometimes it just slips out before we have a chance to control our responses. So thinking before we speak is another great example of how to work in the practice of civility. We also talk about some challenges that we have in an organization that I belong to called the Entrepreneurs Organization. We have a very specific protocol of how we speak to one another. We don't give advice. So that would be the same. in another way of looking at it is your opinion isn't worth very much, right? It's free. And it's, so my father always says, you're, you know, your opinions is worth as much as you pay for it or advice is, is worth as much as you pay for it. So if we were to share experiences and say, well, you know, in my experience, this is what happened to me or what I've experienced. And this is therefore why I think the way I think. That's a lot less confrontational than saying, you're an idiot and you should think the way I think you know, what you're thinking is evil, what you're thinking is dumb, what you're thinking is dangerous. Those kinds of words are just inflammatory and not, really not necessary in 99% of the communications that we have.
1: So Shelby, I'm going to ask a tough question here. I know you think about this. This is why I'm asking you this question. Uh, <laughs> is it seems like one-on-one people can be pretty decent. You know, when the stakes, there's not a lot of high emotion. But when you start getting into a group think, or it becomes impersonal, like on the internet, people start losing rational thinking. And yet, we all seem to agree, maybe we don't, that uh, we ought to be civil. The question is, how do we move that way? How do we take this thought that people say, yeah, I I agree, we ought to be civil, but then you say, well, hold on, I'm a Democrat and you're a Republican, and all of a sudden uh, people can start becoming pretty uncivil quick. And I mean, we happen to have in our community right now on the ballot a school district issue, which is quite controversial. And I've seen really rough feelings and stuff come out. How do we do this? How do we create this wave? What are the best ways to create a culture of this?
2: Again, it has to start with us and our value system of wanting to achieve this. And if you're in a discussion with somebody who you know doesn't agree with you, that is taking the lead on saying, tell me more, tell me something about why you believe the way you believe. Let's say, take this uh, school issue and say, well, let's get, let's dig into a little bit instead of trying to come to the conclusion and pressuring somebody to say, you should vote this way or not, or that way, let's just have a a bigger discussion about it, a wider, broader, more open and accepting discussion. We can't control the other person. They may not be willing to do that, but there are some sort of communications techniques that you can do to sort of steer that person into being more open and into stopping confrontationally. We live in a society, civil society, you know, the same word, civility, civil society is about being in this together. And while we, while I cherish and believe fundamentally in the premise of an American culture of freedom and individual rights and freedoms, I mean, that's at the core of all this for me is I don't want to give those up. But in order to not give those up, I really firmly believe we need to take a big step into communication with each other so that we can keep our democracy, so we can accept other voices in the room. And I always sometimes very openly start with that premise and say, look, I may say things that you don't Agree with, but I'd like to have a conversation with you because I believe more voices in the room is better for democracy and it's better for our freedoms and our individual rights if we have the ability to communicate with each other openly and not slam the door shut on on our ability to interact.
1: Well, that's a great answer. I had a friend one time share with me this thought. He said, Never overestimate your importance (laughs) and never underestimate your influence. And I guess we should not underestimate the influence of one person that chooses to be civil.
2: I hope so. I mean, it is a premise that I'm putting out there on the world and hoping like Gandhi to be the change that I wish to see in the world and trying to live it, you know, and it's, it's not always easy. It's every once in a while you run into that person. I mean, just the simple daily things, people cut us off in the parking lot or in on the road. And, and I have to sit back and say, you know, they must've had something really important, or maybe they weren't, they didn't notice me or they're having a bad day. I don't, these are insignificant things that I don't need to get upset about. And it goes back to also a bit of about joy. And my middle name is joy. And so I have this concept that joy and civility are two sides of the same coin. Without civility, it's hard to be joyful because grumpy people don't make the world a happy place. And without joy, it's hard to be civil. So, I mean, I I think I said it backwards, but anyway, without one, you don't have the other. They go back and forth. They feed on each other. And so the more joy we can find in the world, the better off and more easy it is to be civil with people because the more patient we are, the more rested, the more kind, the more the happier we are, then there's not a whole lot of reason to pick a fight if you wanna say in that state. There are people who kind of seem to wanna be miserable for some reason and I'm afraid I don't understand them, but I do understand that that is the case. So I try to give them the benefit of the doubt even if it takes every bit of my patience to do that.
1: OK, well, I love it. All right. Well, you you'd be that great influence uh, because I, I, I know right. that, uh, you're not going to underestimate it. It's a big deal. Uh, it's much greater than many of us realize. So why should people pursue the practice of civility as a philosophy? You've been talking about this and maybe you've already addressed it on living and having it become an active part of positive change in civilization.
2: Yeah. So when I talked about civil society, you know, I I go back to saying that we are all part of a larger whole. And in order to have a place in this world where we function well together and the things that we all want to see achieved in this world can happen, it can't really happen in a a chaotic and in discord. So we need to find a way to come together and find a common space common bonds, commonalities, common interests. And that's a good starting point. So why should we do it? I I mean, the bottom line is because life is happier and and better and more joyful for everybody if the more civil we are. But that's also not about not saying the hard things, not having the hard conversations. It's about getting us in a place where we can have those hard conversations and it doesn't get shut down by emotion, but it's opened up by intellect and emotional intelligence.
1: How can you have a hard conversation and be civil?
2: I think I've done it a few times. There are places where I've had to say things to people that this is not okay. This behavior is not okay. Addressing, you know, again, simple communication skills of addressing behavior and not personality. This behavior is not okay with me. I find this to be hard to to handle and, and to have a conversation with you that is productive. And I want to have that conversation that is productive. I value your friendship or I value the relationship. Somebody asked a question on, in a forum, like a discussion group. Okay, well, when somebody gets in my face about something or I don't like what they're doing and I'm, how do I do this? And I said, well, okay, there's two questions. The premise is how much does the relationship matter to you? And if the relationship doesn't matter to you, then why bother? Now I'm not saying that we should all just have a short-term thinking as far as relationships as to say well I don't care about this person but in general if it's a passing thing like the person who cut you off in the in the line at the store or something in the big picture what does it matter so why bother why go there what do you think you're going to teach that person you know it's not our place to teach somebody else it's our place to be who we are and show up the way we're supposed to show up in this world and if somebody doesn't uphold that that's not my challenge and the second part of it is if the if the relationship matters then it's worth talking to them civilly because why have a horrible discussion if you can help it? And we all have people in our lives where it's hard to talk to because it's emotionally fraught with landmines for lots of reasons. But I just don't, I'm not giving up on trying to get over some of those hurdles and and find that happy place.
1: Do you say it just like that, Shelby? Just say, you, yeah. know, just say, you know, I'm not comfortable with this behavior or, or do you say, it, you know... Thanks for sharing, but I just don't appreciate this kind of approach and think we can get to a better place. That's
2: Yes, a really good friend of mine, we were having dinner one time and she was surprised at my view on something when she asked me, you know, and I said, well, absolutely, I believe this. And she said, oh, well, we better, we can't talk about this then. I said, no, absolutely, we should. I'm not afraid to talk about this. I don't I don't want you to be afraid to talk about this. For me, it's not going to challenge our relationship if we have a different it was politics, if we have a different political view. It's okay. I want to hear your view. I didn't say I want you to hear mine. But I said, I'm okay with he- hearing something that I don't agree with. And I-, I can talk about it and we should be able to. And it she kind of came back and we, you know, we went on to talk about lots of things. But I think that she was getting uncomfortable because it was bringing emotion up into her belly. You know how you feel that yeah. that temperature rising when you get kind of like, oh, my gosh, I get that too. And Everybody gets that. But the more I can control that part of my emotion and that be centered on how my, literally how my body is feeling. Am I feeling angst? Am I angry? Am I, you know, what is it that I'm feeling? And try to get in touch with that and take a deep breath and not have to respond right away. And even to be honest with that and say, you know, I'm I'm feeling lots of things right now and I just need to kind of process this for a minute. People can understand that kind of stuff. But in my experience, people don't respond well to being attacked because the first thing they want to do is defend themselves. And we talk about people being defensive. And how do you stop that? Well, somebody who's defensive usually felt attacked. So where did that start? So maybe it starts with us, with me, and not saying things that might put people in the position of feeling attacked.
1: Okay, good response. I like that. (laughs) So I was just thinking about this, that so much of this is, and and this is coming through in your comments, Shelby, loud and clear, which is so much of being successful in creating a climate that is more tolerant, more celebratory, is our mindset about other people. In other words, if you have a mindset that, you know what, I don't know everything, and I really do want to see the other person's point of view. If you have a mindset like that, it's really helpful because otherwise you're just being patient until they quit talking, you know. And so if you can say, you know what, I don't know everything, and it gets back to your comment of humility. And you know what, I'm really curious to see what you think about that. That would be helpful for me. I'd like to see your point of view, and maybe it puts the other person at ease a little bit.
2: Right. I mean, tell me your experience around that. You obviously feel very strongly. Has something gone on in your life or have you seen examples of this that, that you can share? Because I'd love to hear about them. It makes it more real for me and maybe I can understand that better. And the humility aspect is that, you know, we need to have enough self-esteem that we can stand up for ourselves and not just be an amoeba. You know, it's not a zero to 100. It's more like the equilibrium in the middle where we have enough balance of ego in our lives where we have the ability to say, I'm capable of thinking feeling and that, all of that and and I I've done some homework and I have some views on this world but also there's plenty to learn and the and that old phrase of the more you know the more you know you don't know is a great one to keep in mind i mean to me that's the essence of humility right there
1: okay good well we we're just talking about just coming up to the end of an election cycle Many people are worn out a little bit. (laughs) And then we know we're going right into another one that's going to be a big stakes one. And the one thing many Americans are united on is how divided we seem to be as a nation. How do we avoid hostility and incivility from becoming the new norm?
2: The first thing that came to mind when you said that is parents. You know, parents are very powerful in their children's lives and should be. I just did something that I don't like to do, which is I just should on you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like the word should. It's one of those things.
1: Well, I probably should. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. I I would like like other people to uh, adopt the I shoulds, but not you should, you know, because again, who likes to be told what to do? but it seems to me that empowering parents to teach their children well about treating other people with dignity and respect. And, uh, you know, we teach them a lot about respecting themselves these days. And I understand and agree with that, but it seems to have been tipped over a little bit into I should be respected by everybody instead of self-respect, which is a slightly different and more nuanced feature. So teaching children to feel good about themselves and who they are, no matter what they were born with, no matter whether they were born like me with bad vision and thick eyeglasses. And if you need braces or whatever it happens to be that, you know, the things that get in kids way that to help teach them self-esteem and self-respect, but not, not to demand respect from others, but to earn it. And so that's a really good place to start. I've often thought that we need to have more debate clubs in this country again, that would be a really great way of of getting young people to understand how to communicate and to take the other position because in debate clubs, you often have to do the preparation to do the defense of the point of view that you might not actually hold, which is a great tool to getting into the empathic and compassionate side of things to understand how to, I don't use the word argue is not a good one, but that's that's essentially what it is, is to debate those kinds of issues and come out shaking hands at the end. We just have to want to. The ones who come to me and say, it's all about them and they are the ones who are uncivil is not taking personal responsibility. And from a political standpoint, it's coming from both sides. I've been watching this quite a bit. So there's probably, if a person is on the left or a person is on the right, because we tend to go into our corners, we probably think the other side is the more uncivil. But I've been really watching this and both sides have their challenges with civility. And it goes to name-calling, it goes to bringing another person down, and the policy of personal division and personal politics of putting somebody down for who they are instead of what their ideas are about.
1: Yeah, this is all about there's a better way to do it.
2: Yes. I I wrote a chapter for a book called The Power of Civility, which is sort of how this whole journey got started as far as writing for me. And one of the challenges that I found in doing my research on my chapter was on political civility. And what I realized is, sadly, it's kind of an oxymoron, is that there's really no such thing as political civility. And in a way, there never has been. It just seems to be super exacerbated these days because hate travels so much faster than love on the Internet. The bad gossip in the in the town always got around a lot faster than the good news, even when we didn't have telephones or internet. But now it's at lightning speed. And so it can really be a dagger. If you think of a lightning bolt to somebody, it can really be a, a challenge. And when I think of things like the incivility in the relationships between teens online with, with bullying, cyberbullying, and that is really dangerous stuff. And anything we can do to get a hold of that is, is a good thing.
1: Yeah, and I think, as I've just been thinking about our visit today with Shelby, that the stakes are so high, my friends, our listeners. I mean, the stakes, really, for the ability to collaborate in a way that makes our country better, the best it can be. It's so hard in such an adversarial environment. And part of the words that I, I was just thinking of when Shelby just talked about this last part here is when we think of civility, maybe we ought to be thinking of love as well, because if you think of love, it helps you think in a bigger way, a more generous way, and maybe these ought to be linked together, and that it doesn't mean we have to agree that we certainly ought to value different points of view, but if we can love others and be civil, it helps us, the whole purpose is to get to a better place, to have a more successful community, and state and country and to be able to solve problems internationally. Uh, I mean, look what's going on in the world. So there's such a big need from this. And so appreciate your comments today, Shelby. It starts with you and me and and a commitment for us to do it. And hopefully others will see that example and it goes out and they feel the love and civility. And any final comments or tips before we wrap up today? If your listeners want to take on their own personal practice
2: of civility, I would highly encourage it. It's a really lovely way to live life. It's also a challenge because especially if you're vocal about it to say, and you just like you might be, have accountability partners to say, I'm on a diet and I've lot, you know, to keep yourself accountable by stating that you are working on a practice of civility. It's an interesting conversation then that it brings up. And I, and I just say this purely from my own experience. That it's obviously people know that I wrote this book. So when we have these conversations, people are very careful to be civil. It's very interesting because they, they know that I've written this. So if you, they know you're on this journey of civility, they They also tend to step up and have their best foot forward, which I don't find to be terrible. I want authentic uh, conversations, but I also they start with civil conversations. So it's kind of fun, but it's also a way to keep yourself accountable because, boy, I know that I have to watch everything I do and say, because that's if I put myself out there as this person who believes in civility imperfect though I may be, I'm certainly putting it out there for criticism. So both of those things take commitment. But I I, honestly, it's been a great journey. And I would encourage anybody who wants to see more civility in the world to take it on.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Shelby, for being with us. Now, this is the author of Civility Rules. What a book. I can't wait to read that book. And uh, how can people find out about what you're doing, Shelby? And uh, where can they find out about your book?
2: So it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, You can also get it through my website, which is shelbyscarbro.com. We've got lots of fun stuff there about civility and joy. And I've got an e-commerce site around joy. So if you want to bring joy into your world to counterbalance the incivility, there's actually, uh, yes, we can do that personally and in our behavior. But you can also have a mug (laughs) that says joy journey and all sorts of fun other things that sort of set the tone for yourself to remind us all the time of what we're shooting for.
1: Well, it's a great middle name. Good job. <laughs>
2: Thank you very much. My parents I'm I'm glad they gave it to me.
1: Uh, we would love to have you Shelby on this show today. We wish you all the best, Shelby. Thank you. Thank you likewise. Yeah. My pleasure. And to our listeners, it's always a privilege to have you here. From the bottom of our heart, we're so grateful for your interest, for your desires of just working on becoming your best. And we wish you the best today and always.
0: Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly peak performance coaching program, or how to get certified as a trainer or coach, or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a great week.